This is your invitation to the intersection of versatility and design. The kind of experience you can only find in a Lexus SUV. A feeling this empowering is invite only. Fortunately, you're invited. Experience the versatility of the complete line of Lexus SUVs and some of the best offers of the year on select models at the Invitation to Lexus sales event, now through April 1st. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. My family thinks I'm crazy. Podcast where I, your host, try to give you some tips on how you can explain all this weird, wild, crazy conspiracy stuff to the people you love most. Because that's what I've been trying to do for the past 10 years with no success. I've been telling everybody that our government is shady. But every time I do, my family thinks I'm crazy. The hollow earth UFOs, aliens, and baby. And they don't want to hear it. They're just like, oh, here we go, Mark. Off again with your... Mark being Mark again. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, that's the thing about podcasts is when you're on the air, and it's like therapy, you know? If I can't talk to my family about this stuff, I'll talk to you, Matt, and all our listeners. You know, just tell your whole podcast. Yeah. So who are we talking about today, Matt? Are the iconic cities of America much older than we've been taught? Is it possible that an old world civilization was erased from history? According to some, with fires, earthquakes, and floods, the old infrastructure was eliminated or reclaimed as new in a politically and racially motivated Great Reset. And another question. Could the robber barons of the late 19th century have strong-armed their way into creating a monopoly-style electrification of America, gridding this country into taxable zones, the western territories forced to abdicate their sovereignty as a result of predatory capitalists provoking widespread disasters in an effort to wipe the slate clean and institute their electric grid of financial entrapment? We explore all of these questions and more on today's episode of the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast with guest Matthew Smith, who himself is an experienced designer slash builder, a skilled carpenter and architect specializing in roundhouse yurt designs and constructions. In 2003, he received his Bachelor's of Architecture Cum Laude at NGIT in Newark, New Jersey, where he also dedicated many years of his life to street-level and grassroots political activism. Matt now lives in the Pacific Northwest, where he recently launched a podcast on YouTube called Marvelous Old World. He synthesizes there 
His explorations of old world American architecture, electric universe physics, ayahuasca, and consciousness. These topics are all discussed there on his YouTube channel. I'm Mystic Mark. Thank you to all our supporters on Patreon, Rockfin, and Substack. Sign up today to hear all of our My Family Thinks I'm Crazy episodes at least a day early. Plus, you get access to all of the bonus content there. Hundreds of episodes there. Go and check it all out. Videos, uh, articles that I've written, and my PDFs that are available for purchase. You can buy them all today. Thank you so much for being here, folks, and enjoy this conversation with Matthew Smith. Ladies and gentlemen, here we are back again on the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast. You know who I am, and today we have a returning champion, a guest who's come up in the past couple months for a reason we're going to get to right off the top of the bat. But in the meantime, since he was last here, he took it upon himself to expand all of our minds by diving further into a topic that he is fascinated with, and so am I. Marvelous Old World is the name of his new channel on YouTube. I assume it's also a podcast. Maybe not, but we'll talk him into that. Matthew Smith returns here on the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast. You know him from dreamdesignbuild.org, Instagram at Yurt Designs, and of course now with the new channel, Marvelous Old World. How you been? You've been busy, obviously. Uh, tell us a little bit about Marvelous Old World and what kind of kicked that off. Nothing but busy, Mark. It's really <laughs> good to be back here with you, man. It's Likewise. Good to see you, my friend. Yeah. When I was last on your podcast, you asked me at the end if I was going to start a podcast on my own. And I said, hell no. I'm just buried. I got so many things going on. I've got three boys, three, three teenage boys I'm bringing up. I'm running an architectural design business and just had my plate full, but it planted a seed and I was completely willing to leave it up to you professionals in the podcast space. And, but then I just kept going with my research and it was just gnawing at me that I really wanted to put it together in not necessarily podcast form, but just video form, research video format, and just put it out there. So I came up with that name and threw it up on YouTube and yeah, it's, it's been an interesting process. And if people are interested in any of the topics that we get into here today, yeah, definitely go check out Marvelous Old World on YouTube. And if it turns into an actual podcast, we'll see. But just kind of one step at a time right now. Right on. Well, cool, man. So obviously, Marvelous Old World's pretty what you're covering is implied, but I would say that unlike the average Tartaria researcher, no slight, no shade to them, I appreciate speaking with a guy like you as opposed to someone whose reputation is based solely on their Google searches and images they find. 
You're an architect. You're someone who's been traditionally trained to some degree. You've gone to actual schools. You have a business doing this. You have a degree in architecture. So I don't think it's a stretch to trust you more than the average, let's say, Tartaria researcher. Because a lot of this stuff I see, and I've already offended all the Tartaria lovers on this show. They probably don't even listen anymore because they hate my opinion about Tartaria. But I'm still, regardless of my opinion, fascinated by the subject and, again, not unwilling to discuss it because I think we need more guys like you approaching this subject with maybe a more practical or pragmatic approach. So tell us about that. I mean, what about being an architect? Obviously, I can see why you became interested in this stuff, but Tartarius in particular, but as an architect, how does that change the way you examine these mm -hmm. old world structures? My first employer, Jack Labduska, he just passed away. I just found out that he passed away. He was, I think, around 90. He was a beloved architecture professor of mine at NJIT. I graduated there in 2003. It's in Newark, New Jersey. And that's where I got my formal training in architecture. And he was a master architect like of the, the old school draw full-scale details on, on vellum in the office. And he, that's how he learned. And he was so good at what he did. He built or designed skyscrapers in New York and like just real practical knowledge. He had, yeah. He was also a forensics architect. And so when there was a fire, let's say, or after 9-11, I was going to school when 9-11 happened and we could see what was going on in, in lower Manhattan from across the Hudson River from our architecture building. So that really, really left a huge imprint. But the media called him. They called the school, the architecture school and said, who can we talk to to get a sort of a building analysis of the effects of fire on steel and glass and concrete structures? And the school referred the press to Jack Labduska. And because he had this sort of forensic, not sort of, he had a forensics approach where he could analyze a structure and the forces at play and so forth and provide an assessment of what, how the fire moved through a building, how an earthquake would affect structures under different conditions, how snow loads, hurricane force, all these things that are thrown at buildings, how does the building respond to it? And at the end of the day, all the sum of all forces has to equal zero, right? That building's got to stand up or else catastrophe happens. And I got that sensibility from him, but also through building. I've always had hammer in my hand since I was a kid. I was always building and playing with materials and just studying materials through through doing and putting them together in different ways. And so I just kind of grew up with this sense. And I think that's why this professor and I gravitated, gravitated towards each other. And so when I started looking into these alternative research fields, alternative views of our built history, I looked at it as stones don't lie. Let's whatever the narrative says, whatever podcasters are saying, whatever anybody has written down with pen and ink. For me, I'm always going to hold that up to what I see 
with my own eyes and what I can touch. Because many of these buildings, fortunately, are still with us and you can just go look at them. So if there's talk about mud flood or what have you, you just go look and it's like, okay, what, why are these windows below grade? Or one of my favorite, and we'll get into this as we proceed, but one of my favorite angles of this research is the cement, this idea of natural cement. And a lot of people might be familiar with this idea that the earlier buildings, basically a lot of the grand architecture that this research community is focused on, the state houses, capital buildings, bridges, canals of what I, me and many other people call old world architecture are made, are, are put together using this cement that had been forgotten about for a hundred years or so that was rediscovered when they were doing restoration work on Fort Jefferson off the coast of the Florida Keys. And they realized that they couldn't just use regular old porcelain cement to repair this building because the building would reject it because there's a chemical bond that occurs. And so they had to, they, they didn't understand what this was. They had to look into it. And so what they discovered was, lo and behold, the Port Jefferson, and again, hundreds and thousands of these old world buildings, turns out, were put together with this natural cement. That is basically one type of limestone that's mined and quarried from places like the the Rosendale mines in in the Catskills, which I visited a few years ago. And I mean, talk about an old world setting like that place looks ancient. When I went in there, it just absolutely looks ancient. I mean, the, the ceilings of this mine were like 25, 30 feet high. And like the physics of the mining techniques they use sort of defy the modern geological understanding just for instance not to get too much into the weeds right now like they they say that with it's pillar and i think it's pillar and room or something like that technique where they're basically carving out and leaving they're carving out the mine materials and they're leaving behind pillars and columns to hold up the roof of the mine that modern geology allows for geological science allows for 40% of the material to remain as columns to be structurally sound, to continue mining that 60%. Well, the Rosendale mine, that's also called the Widow Jane mine, they've mined up to 90% of the material. So even the engineering that goes into this mine like defies modern sets of modern scientific engineering and modern practices. And so... The, there's something very special. There's many things actually that are very special about this old cement, what I'm calling old world cement. And it's no, it's no small thing that it was forgotten about. And I'm sorry if this gets a little out of order here. They, when I say they forgot about it, it's, I have to pause there. And what I mean is that the industry itself moved on from natural cement and embraced this Portland cement, which is much more brittle, but it dries fast. And whereas this old world natural rock cement, that's again, it's just one line, type of limestone and it's made up of silica and calcium, which is so interesting because those materials together have a piezoelectric effect, piezoelectric property, which means that you push, you put it under pressure and it's going to produce charge. And so the last time I was on your show, we talked about 
We talked about electric architecture, was getting into this idea of etheric architecture, electric architecture, and like our cathedrals, like really healing structures. And are they actually doing something with the materiality? They look like crystals. They look like giant crystals. They have rose windows that have cymatic, cymatic forms to them. They're made with sacred geometry. They utilize materials like granite, which again is full of quartz and has this piece, same kind of piezoelectric property. Well, it turns out in my research, my looking into this natural cement, it too has this sort of piezoelectric quality to it. So then, and so then when I look at these old buildings and I'm thinking, well, to me, they, it starts to point to a different, a different understanding of what electricity is, for instance, a mm-hmm. different understanding of what a building can do the type of quality that a, the effect, let's say, of a building on the inhabitant, whether it's healing, whether it's raising our charge, raising our, helping us to raise our chi, helping us to align with a greater energy body. Now, let me ask you this. When we look at Fort Jefferson, and for folks who haven't heard that first interview with Matthew and I consider going back and listening to that and then coming back to this because we did cover a lot of ground on that episode in the realm of electrical architecture but for a moment I was sharing on the screen for all the video people Fort Jefferson I'm going to share it again you won't be able to see it unfortunately Matt because of the way I'm sharing it it's just on the finished end of the product but just to show people how far away Fort Jefferson is from like land. I mean, I'm going to zoom out a little bit. Takes a while before we even see the rest of Florida. I mean, look at how remote this Fort Jefferson is. It's like very far off of what Key West, like where that Key West road ends several miles away from that. So it's pretty mind blowing that they got, enough material there to make it i think what the third largest fort of its kind in the united states next to fort adams and fort monroe so yeah it's a tremendously big undertaking 16 acres 16 million bricks (laughs) the gematria people might be freaking out over that but uh, yeah 16 by 16 it's interesting that kind of reminds me of the 40 on the 40th that Ross Ben and Mike Wan talk about uh, 16 mm. is multiplied or divided by four. But anyways, not to get off in the Gematra weeds here. What do you, what kind of pressure would it take to release energy from these bricks? Are they putting pressure on themselves? Just the weight, like from layer to top, bottom to top, is that pressure sufficient to create a sort of, constant charge or a stable charge is the building itself as it's sitting charged or would it take something like i don't know an earthquake or something akin to that to activate this energy that's inside of it because it piezoelectricity you could take a quartz crystal and strike it and it will release energy right that's how watches work how, do, how right what would the intention be for this is this maybe a defense system if a cannonball hits it would it sort of reflect the energy back that, i mean that's a great question i don't know the answer to that particular question but you're right watches use it radios use it and that's wild just to pause on that one 
like the idea that a, a crystal under pressure can receive a signal. So when we start looking at sacred buildings placed on ley lines, and I know that's an area of interest of yours, and these buildings have this quality of receiving, not just producing charge, but receiving signal, if we're just to kind of extrapolate, or oh, just becomes very, the mystery deepens in my mind, can they produce charge just by the sheer force of gravity upon pulling one stone or one brick into another and compressing them? I believe so. I have opened right now a, an article from sciencedirect.com, and it is titled Piezoelectric Materials for Sustainable Building Structures. And the abstract starts out saying that piezoelectric materials are capable of transforming mechanical strain and vibration into electrical energy. And this paper is from just the last, yeah, 2019. This property allows opportunities for implementing renewable and sustainable energy through power harvesting and self-sustained smart sensing in buildings. And it's like, are we just rediscovering what our ancestors or some other iteration of civilization that was here before already knew? And I'm leaning towards that. And again, it's like you you said the T word three times starting out. And I actually try to avoid Tartaria. I accept at face value that many that the community by and large uses that as a placeholder, like mud flood. We use these terms because we're trying to come up with a new story because we're looking at all of these anomalies now. People are using the internet to research and compare notes, put their yeah. ideas out there. So we, we're looking for a new story to kind of, one, to make sense of what we're seeing. And we need new stories. We need, the old story is not adding up anymore. The storybooks, the history books, they don't explain what we are seeing. We use a term like Tartaria to mean as this umbrella thing umbrella term to imply this lost civilization right that's right at our doorstep in cities all around us and i don't like to use it myself because it's also loaded right and i while we i look at it in the sense of this idea of egregores this thought form like i feel like it's becoming its own thought form Mm. And it has its own sort of divisiveness. Like, I, yeah, I've seen the maps too. And I see Tartaria is probably an empire, like over in Eurasia somewhere and what's now Russia, Mongolia. And, but it's over there and we're here and this is America. So I call it American. And to me, it's American. Well, and, and I much prefer to, 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 to use the term American, old world American architecture. Right. And I should apologize because you did make that clear the last time we spoke that <laughs> old world is a more appropriate term. I agree with you. I think, unfortunately, Tartaria has this sort of flat earth stink on it where you can right. believe that NASA is lying to us without necessarily believing the earth is flat. But yeah. because that audience is very vocal about their beliefs, a lot of people conflate the two. I think the same right. thing's happening with Tartaria. Again, no offense to any folks, no matter what you believe, I believe in being open-minded. So stick around. Don't get so upset just because I don't agree with you. Now, when it comes to the maps, you're certainly right. I think one thing that's really fascinating 
to keep it, I guess, America centric for this conversation is some of the depictions of America before Columbus, the Mm -hmm. way America was depicted on maps. And through that research, it seems like there's a good case to be made that not only were there advanced civilizations rooted here in America to begin with, but advanced civilizations were traveling here prior to Columbus's voyage. We have a bunch of evidence that the Vikings, I mean, it's pretty much acknowledged that the Vikings had mapped out parts of Canada and the North Atlantic, obviously, but other groups like the Phoenicians, the Celtics, the Iberians, I mean, the people from Africa, people from China, people from Russia, people from the Philippines and the Southeast, or I'm sorry, yeah, is it East, Southeast Asian islands? That part of the world, Micronesia, I guess you can call it. All of these groups had traveled to South and North America prior to Columbus. So I love the old world conversation. As much skepticism as I have towards the Russo-centric Tartaria theory, I don't extend that skepticism to any of the other old world stuff. I am skeptical to a degree, but I'm not like closed minded, I guess is a more accurate way to describe it. So yeah, with that disclaimer aside, anyone who is triggered by the T word or maybe triggered by the lack of the T word, it is what it is, right? Yeah. And again, it's like this, to me, it's the stones don't lie. Let's just look at what the buildings are telling us. They're artifacts. Let's right. look at them as artifacts with the story to tell. And whatever we end up, whatever labels we put on it are a distant second. Now, let's start to talk about some of these examples. We've got the Fort Jefferson National Monument, as it's now called. And it's convenient to call these things military forts. So there's a sort of secrecy implied with the military where they don't have to give information to just anybody. So I wonder if that is sort of the protocol where these old world structures aren't so much built, but taken over by units and various government factions of the world where they just sort of discover something, plant their flag on it, and then right right into history as if they had built it because it's more... I don't know, politically correct to do that rather than say, oh, we stole this fort. It's easier to just say, oh, no, we built this remote fort. <laughs> yeah. And a built and shout out to was it Conspiracies R Us. And he's the one that first kind of got me in looking at I don't fort know this Jefferson. one. What's that? I never heard of this guy, Conspiracies R Us. I like that, though. I'm going to write that name down. We'll look oh, him up. It's a really good channel. He does really good research. And he's the first one that I saw looking into this natural cement question and pointing to these anomalies at Fort Jefferson. And yeah, there's lots of like curiosities about that. It's like, why so remote? Why so big? How did they get all that material out there? You can do an analysis on like cargo loads for ships of the time of the late 1800s or mid 1800s and how much they can haul. But why? It's so remote, so far out. And then apparently it didn't even really get utilized militarily once it was completed and then just fell into ruin. And then now fast forward to the early 2000s and they were doing this restoration project on it and made this great discovery, which I think is a clue for this, a major clue for this research. And I think that you could almost take any building and determine if it's old world or not by analyzing the mortar. 
the makeup of the mortar. If it's Portland cement, it was probably built in the last century at most 130 years. Portland cement wasn't really, they didn't come up with it until like 18, mid 1870s, 1880s. And then it took off as an industrial pro- product. But like, why, why this inferior uh, material that had to be imported that had a short life that's brittle. We, our bridges and buildings start falling apart after 50 years. Whereas the natural cement, it's also called American rock cement. It's like Roman cement. It strengthens over time. It lasts centuries and centuries. It hardens underwater. It's much simpler to produce because it's one material as opposed to a conglomerate of many different admixtures and so forth, like Portland cement. So the only thing that I can see that Portland cement has to its advantage is that it sets faster. So if you're trying to build, rebuild, or build a new cityscape, a new civilization in a hurry, maybe put, and you don't really care if the buildings stick around all that long, maybe Portland cement would be the way to go. Otherwise, we had this locally available material that apparently built all of the great architecture of, again, old world America, and then just fell into a disuse as a, as a go-to construction material. So I, I find that to be very odd. So again, where I put my research in the last six months, eight months since we last spoke, was just to look at, take these ideas and apply them locally. And I'm, I live in the Seattle area, so... Seattle has this fascinating underground, you can take an underground tour downtown and there's all these points of entry and there's all this intrigue and lore and history wrapped around underground Seattle. So I did my first video for the podcast on underground Seattle. And it was interesting because I had like 30 subscribers when I released that video and it just took off. Like all of a sudden it was like almost 20,000 views on it. And I was like, wow, there's some real interest in this. And so that was the beginning of my research. And the, again, the anomalies, what you said about, was there an existing civilization where there existing buildings that were sort of rediscovered, founded, and re and claimed and a new flag placed up, up on top of it. Well, that's pretty much what I found. That's pretty much what I found here in well, Seattle. I mean, if we could go back to yeah. Fort Jefferson, I know you just spent mm-hmm. some time talking about Seattle, but I hate to do this to you, but I mean, to mm-hmm. reiterate the point you just made, I mean, I just looked up who designed Fort Jefferson and it is it just doesn't make sense that these guys would be even employed to do this like at their level so let me just tell you the three people who are claimed responsible for Fort Jefferson and the Florida Keys or the Dry Tortugas Joseph Gilbert Totten who fought in the War of 1812, served as Chief of Engineers and was a regent of the Smithsonian Institution a co-founder of the National Academy of Sciences. He was also a member of the American Philosophical Society. All of that before, before he designed 
this fort or help design it, which he is an engineer, so sort of adds up, but he's from New Haven, Connecticut, interesting enough, and connected to some pretty wealthy up there military families, the Mansfields family, Totten Mansfield is a town named after that family. I don't know if it's the reverse way or what, but let's see. And then there's Louis Agassi, who has an incredibly long Wikipedia page because, again, someone who it just doesn't seem like he would have the time based on his biography to help contribute to this project. He is a Swiss-born American biologist and geologist, a scholar of Earth's natural history, PhD at Erlangen, a medical degree at Munich, he founded the Museum of Comparative Zoology, visited Harvard University after emigrating to the United States in 1847. Again, he wasn't even in the United States yet when the fort was being created. It says he was thought of in 1843 or something like that. But and his Wikipedia page is very long, and there's one interesting excerpt about him being a racist and spreading some racist ideas through the field of polygenism, which it tries to explain the human origins. So again, like this guy seems like a dude who would be, I don't know, employed by, again, the folks like Smithsonian trying to cover up certain aspects of history. Now this guy, the third guy, really puts it all together. Montgomery Cunningham Meigs, United States Army officer, civil engineer, quartermaster general of the U.S. Army. I mean, these are top-level guys designing this fort in a lot of different fields. And he was a graduate of Yale University. Go figure. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe it makes sense. Maybe the historians will say, no, these guys would have done stuff like this. It does talk about him at other forts. But, yeah, it just seems like these guys were very busy with other things to go and design this fort that for the most part was abandoned within decades of its creation and in a spot where Navy Commodore David Porter, who first inspected it, said this just is an awful place to build a fort. He just, yeah, I I hate to take up all the time, but to your point, there are tons of anomalies with just our first example here. Right. And I, the way I look at it is you can go mad, like pulling out all the threads and it's like, well, this doesn't add up. This doesn't make sense. And I've been there myself. I've found myself in some dark places where it, it just seems overwhelming and, until I, I learned to zoom out and realize, well, the narrative as it's told is a tapestry. It's a fabric and you pull on any thread and it's going to start to come apart. So you just start to kind of zoom out a little bit and get more of a bird's eye view to it and realize that's that's what it is. It's a fabric and it is coming apart. And so don't get caught up in any one thread. But yeah, you're right. And so just the idea of these architects, like they just ascribe all these accomplishments to this and that historical figure. A lot of, and so when I look into the question of who the architects were, just you mentioned the Smithsonian. I can't remember his name right now. I wanted to do a video on this and I will, but the Smithsonian building, the Smithsonian castle, that exquisite red brick building that's right in like downtown Washington, DC. The architect that is attributed with that building is a 
colleague or was a colleague of Frederick Engels and Karl Marx. And he's a, he was a German immigrant who came over here and found that a German newspaper in the German-American community that was n- newly establishing. And he's credited with a, a lot of buildings in Washington, D.C., like really exquisite red brick buildings, the Smithsonian being one of them. But I just find that, and he was so much a colleague of Engels and Marx that he there's quotes where Engels phrases him directly, like by name. And it's, what is, how is it, <laughs> how, how is this? Right. Huh. Yeah, I have the unimage of the Smithsonian up above my head here for the video audience. And it looks like a palatial estate out there in England with this sort of cherry tree garden courtyard and yeah, red bricks all the way through. I don't remember seeing this. I've only been to DC once, so I don't remember if I've seen the Smithsonian, but uh, yeah, fascinating stuff. Here's a well, this, I think, is this the same building, Smithsonian American Art Museum? Maybe not. These aren't red bricks, but you can't so, see yeah, the pictures. So the story of the architects, I mean, in, even like Frederick Law Olmsted, the famous landscape architect, who's this volunteer park, which I was just at yesterday because that's where Bruce Lee's grave is. Shout out to Bruce Lee. Just passed away 50 years ago yesterday, and I brought my son there to pay homage, but that's right adjacent to Volunteer Park, and that's an Olmstead Park, or that might be Olmstead's sons, who apparently carried on his father's legacy. Now, we'll circle back around to Olmstead, but Olmstead was a journalist. He wasn't, tra- his, to, my un- to my understanding, wasn't trained as an architect or landscape architect. He was, initially, he was a journalist. That was his career. And so, how, again, how is it that somebody who's trained as a journalist traveling around the country, gathering stories in the first part of his professional life, his adult life, how is it that he just becomes this master of landscape architecture and is credited with designing Central Park? And so, yeah, scratch and sniff. What can I say? Well, speaking of Central Park, Cleopatra's Needle has -hmm. always kind of baffled me. I wonder... If there's a sort of, in that same line of thinking, no pun intended with ley lines, if there was a sort of energetic acupuncture point there, I mean, they call it Cleopatra's needle. I don't think that's a coincidence, but I wonder, obviously back then they were all obsessed with Egypt because it was all new and freshly discovered. But I wonder how much money, how much time went into putting that Cleopatra's needle in Central Park. I mean, yeah, and just to display Egyptian culture there. I mean, it, it just it feels like these structures have a energetic purpose, right? I mean, obelisk is something that kind of doesn't it sort of capture residual energy that rushes by it and kind of funnels it to that point? Am I thinking of the right? Yeah, I mean, I see obelisks as antennas, like vibratory, like frequency receivers of some kind. They're often outside temples or adjacent pyramids in pairs. And I mean, you put two tuning forks close to each other and one's vibrating, the other's going to pick up that vibration, right? So why wouldn't stone structures, again, made of materials that have piezoelectric properties that are producing charge and receiving 
signal. We just discussed that. Yeah. And that they took this list. I've seen it and I hope they figure out how to preserve it because it seems like the ravages of New York City air are kind of have they're quickly eroding. It's that, being weathered uh, considerably, yeah. Yeah, but and so why would they put it in that particular place? Is it well, you take something from the equator, I think, isn't Egypt like almost not on the equator, but it's much closer to the equator than New York City is. And also New York City is probably a lot more humid than than Egypt. So yeah, I imagine it's eroding a lot faster than it would have if it just stayed where it was. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, on that topic, I find it fascinating that Giza, the Giza Plateau and the Great Pyramid in particular, I think Randall Carlson talks about this is that like ge- geographic epicenter of the world, of the planet. Hmm. Uh, just uh, how do they determine that? I'm not quite sure. I know what you're referring to. I think, and I tried to explain this to somebody, and they like got so upset with me as if this oh. was incalculable. But I, it's the center of all of the geographic landmass on the planet. I tried to tell my grandfather that. Who's, I don't know. He started watching Ancient Aliens, so I thought, okay, here's our bridge. We can start to talk about this stuff. And when I said that, he lost it. He was like, ah, you can't even, there's no way you could calculate that. I'm like, well, well they did. <laughs> tell him it also has, has the geometry of circling the square embedded in it. That's what it, and that's what's so yeah. baffling about it. And that's why I think the ancient alien thing gets a little silly because here my grandpa is concerned with the people who built it rather than what it is and how amazing what it is. I mean... It kind of, it feels like a, I don't know if red herring's the right term, but if we could go back to Frederick Olmsted, because this guy is a fascinating character. He's actually born in Hartford, Connecticut, went to Yale College. So another one of these characters that's in this zeitgeist of sort of reality management, right? I mean, that's what it seems like the old world conversation is really the underpins of it is that there's a group of people trying to manage our perception of reality. And in order to do that, they need to erase certain old world sites. But uh, yeah, here, Frederick Law Olmsted worked on projects all the way from Niagara Falls to Montreal, Quebec, Boston, Massachusetts, Wisconsin, Kentucky, California, Berkeley. I mean, he's all over the place. Sanford University, Palo Alto, California, yeah, the list is impossibly long. <laughs> yeah. And this is going to blow your mind, Mark, because I found out through my research that Olmsted, the father, and then the son, one of the son, I think John Olmsted, was the next door neighbor, like across the yard from Henry Hobson Richardson, who is credited with launching the style that is affectionately known as Richardsonian Romanesque. Mm. And that's where my 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 research led me into looking at the legacy of Richardson. And I love that you used that term. What was it? Reality management. Management. Right. Because that's pretty much, and I say this with some almost like sadness, because Richardson was such a hero of mine, architecturally speaking. I just, I find him to just fit that to a T, just that he his legacy doesn't add up. But that they were neighbors, Olmsted and Richardson were neighbors, next door neighbors in Brookline, Massachusetts, 
which is a stone's throw from Harvard, which mm-hmm. is where H.H. H. Richard, Richardson went to study. Yeah. Brookline. Brookline is an interesting place. Past guests on the show, Christopher Knowles, someone who is a friend of mine now. I've went and met him in person. He's from this area. And the first time he was on my show, all the way back in episode 18 or something like that, he uh, he told me about this very strange mob, CIA, Harvard connection that's centered right there in that part of Massachusetts. So I don't know enough to say anymore, and I don't want to get either of us whacked. So we should maybe not well, talk about the mob, but yeah. I mean, but we can look at the fact that at the time that they were neighbors, Olmsted and Richardson were neighbors, Brookline was the wealthiest suburb in America. Right. And it had, I think it was the first country club or something like this in America. It was also extremely racist, too. I mean, the deeds forbade selling any property to any black or Irish person back in the 1800s. That was just sort of, yeah. I don't know. Hmm. That was maybe before their time. No Irish people allowed, huh? Either. Yeah, we wouldn't have been allowed there, Matt. Well, how is that? Again, it's like, pause. How is it that Olmsted and Richardson were next-door neighbors? Hmm. Richardson, if you look at the list of buildings that he's ascribed with, it's also impossibly long. And in my research of him, what I found out was he was very much a middling student. He was very disinterested in academics. He was a Southern dandy who came from an extremely wealthy, prominent family whose grandfather is credited with discovering oxygen, of all things. And so he he was basically like a Louisiana plantation dandy who went up to, moved up to Boston, went to Harvard, joined the Porcelinian Club or the Porcelain Club. I thought it was the Pork Porcelinian. It's spelled like in phonetically, I guess pronounced Porcelinian. It's with a C. I don't know how it's supposed to be pronounced, but they do use the pig, the secret society, basically. It's like the skull and bones of Harvard. And at the time there was like I mean it's like the cream of the cream of the crop is President Theodore Roosevelt, I believe. Like that's the kind of people that are led into this club. So Richardson, Henry Hobson, the HH intrigues me because HH is like 33 all by itself. And like I also feel like it's hidden hand, right? <laughs> to me. That's how I look at it. The H is three lines make an H. So an H would be 33. Right. So that's interesting. I never thought of that. HH is also, weirdly enough, I think it's like a white supremacy thing too, because it's like a Heil, you know what? And then uh-huh. and then also yeah. there's a weirder association too with serial killers overwhelmingly having like those kind of, I don't know, if it's three names that all start with the same letter, like H.H. Oh, Holmes. Man, that's so weird that you say that, Mark, because I think the, do you know the Devil in the White City book about the Chicago World's Fair? H.H. Holmes, right. Holy yeah, my, my aunt read that book. Funny enough, we were kind of talking about the World's Fairs. But yeah, talk about reality management. That's who I thought of when you first said H.H. Richardson. So I guess not quite the same as the uh, serial killers with three names all starting with the same letter. 
I don't know. I think there are other examples beyond H.H. Holmes. But uh, you mentioned his great-grandfather discovering oxygen. We should point out that his great-grandfather was Joseph Priestley, who is a big deal. I mean, he wrote Mm -hmm. extensively on electricity and created machines that kind of demonstrated some uses or just the reality or the concept of electricity. So him and Benjamin Franklin were working together to a certain extent. And he was one of these Calvinists who had these kind of odd beliefs for Christians at the time. And a lot of those Calvinists ended up colonizing New England. So a lot of these like upper crust top level families that come from the East Coast have roots in Calvinism. There's also a weird lunar moonstone that commemorates Priestley in Great Bar, Birmingham, UK. So tons of weird stuff with Joseph Priestley. But you say Henry Hobson Richardson didn't appear to be as skilled as he should, given his pedigree of projects that he's worked on all the this long resume of his do you think that it's possible that he is like we sort of mentioned with Fort Jefferson this sort of person who just kind of claims buildings that were already built or do you think that was just the nature of architecture back then where these men were employing so many people at such little pay that they were kind of taking credit for other people's work while doing very little of it themselves. I mean, that's possible. That's that there. It's possible that that's an aspect of it because he did have both McKinmead and White, the famous New York architects, mm. like New York Public Library, that legacy to them as McKim and one of the other guys worked, did work in Richardson's office. But he, so it's possible that he was just sort of a figurehead who was taking credit, but it's still the story still needs to be scrutinized, I believe, because he is in in all the history books that I've read and 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 everything that I was taught, it's him who is credited with being the genius behind this architectural style. And I say style in air quotes because we look at architecture in terms of styles now. I look at architecture in terms of first, what is the story that the building is telling as an artifact? And so if I look at a cathedral, I can't, I cannot accept that. I find it hard to accept that a building like a cathedral that we look at, oh, if it's in Europe, yeah, it took 80 years or several generations. And there was decades of fathers and sons that passed down masters, master and apprentice type relationship, passed down skill sets and, you know, lifelong apprenticeships, and then a village life to support all that. And then the materials being quarried from somewhere and the tools being manufactured somewhere else. And and then hewing the materials into what it would take to fit them together in such a way. And so it's this whole sort of tapestry resources and energies and processes and right down to like community life and everything that would go into a cathedral in Europe. But you take that cathedral and you put in America and it's like, oh, well, that's just like cathedral style. And yeah, we had a bunch of like really, really skilled uh, workers that came, just showed up on boats and then took trains and showed up at this area and could knock out a cathedral. 
I don't see it that way. I see it it's still as a cathedral that's telling the same story that it would tell in Europe, that you need this full cornucopia, this tapestry of time, processes, resources, uh, and engineering, culture, all these supporting elements. That's the same, all that same stuff has to go into a cathedral here. And so if I look at a what's a Romanesque, Richard, what's considered to be Richardsonian Romanesque building, I find it really hard to accept that it's just as one genius who was able to just come up with all of this himself after again, and like we can get into it a little bit more, not to beat the horse, but he was really a, a, an average, like they call it the gentleman C. You know, he was a gentleman C student. They have this thing, this like high society, the Ivy League, institutions. So he wasn't overly concerned with academics. No, he was actually just an average student. And like, if you read books about him, it's repeated over and over again, because it can't really mask it. And not only that, he was very sickly throughout his whole career. And his whole career only spanned like 20 years. He died very young. He died at 47. He was obese. He had this gastro disease. He was said to have a horrific stutter where he had a really hard time communicating with his clients, he so much so that he was exempted from military service on account of the stutter he supposedly had. And when I say obese, it's like he couldn't get out of bed towards the end of his career. He had to have like special pulley systems in his house in Brookline, Massachusetts, where his home office was. And so after being a very average student, and he did, so after a couple of years at Harvard, and which he wasn't just in this porcelainian club or porcelain club, he was also in two others. So he was in three secret societies, and he is known for at the time for his dress, for his flamboyant dress. He was much more into like going shopping for clothes than and dressing up as a dandy than any kind of like academic pursuit or interest. But then he goes and he got into, somehow he got into, I think an uncle sponsored him to go to the Ecole de Beaux-Arts in, in Paris, which is the elite architectural institute in Paris. And he was going to go there for a short time, I think a year or so. He ended up staying for the entirety of the American Civil War because the war broke out while he was gone. So he just hung out in Paris, did his thing there, and then came back and immediately out of college, basically, immediately got a commission to design Trinity Church in Boston. And Trinity Church is said to be one of the greatest masterpieces of American church architecture. It's mind-blowing. And when I look at that building, I did a video just in conversation with Old World Explorations podcast. And he's, this fellow, Chris McKenney, he's great. He's going city by city and just asking these questions in every city across the Americas. And I think it's, he's got a fantastic channel, but we sat for an hour or so and just looked into this legacy of Richardson. So if people are interested in, in, in delving into this a little deeper, they can check out that video on my channel. But so for him to come out or for anybody to just come out of college as a young man, somewhere in your, maybe at the time he's in his late 20s or something, middle to late 20s around there, and you're given a commission to design Trinity Church, and you come up with this just absolute masterpiece of 
architecture. And again, if you look at the facade, just the facade on that, it looks ancient. It looks so old. And it's the level of detail on that with the arches and the columns. And it's, I mean, if the, it's an old world building if I've ever seen one. But you don't, even if you're a genius, you don't just like come out with that. Like that's years and cool. decades of apprenticeship and practice. And to me, and I look at that and feel like it's a, at a minimum, it's a disservice to the artisanship, to the craftsmanship, to the workmanship that goes into a building like that. It right. does it a disservice to look at it as like one, a style, two, just the result of one, one genius mind. And for folks who might not be familiar with Massachusetts history or colonial history, this church, Trinity Church, let's know like <laughs> startup church. That's the church of Boston, along with two or three others that had been there from the beginning. These are historic churches. I think the King's Chapel was the British church. So that was like the Anglican church, the the people who were loyalists during the Revolutionary War would have been allied with that church. I don't know that those churches survived after the Revolutionary War, at least the same way they were when England was here. But yeah, that's the Anglican church that he's working on there. Now it's, I think, the Episcopal Diocese of Massachusetts. So yeah, still, I think that's Anglican or Catholic. I'm not sure. But it's interesting how these buildings, they kind of, they leave such a strong impression. This is a huge church in such a historically rich area. And like you pointed out, this guy straight out of college gets this dream gig. I mean, what are the odds of that? You can say that he's just, I mean, his grandfather hung out with Ben Franklin. Like he's got connections. True. But it's the ability to come up with that as opposed to, once again, look at the building. What is the story that building is telling us? To me, it's taught, it, it speaks to generation after generation of established guilds and master craftsmen, apprentice relationships and to a community and to a industry and a the ability to fabricate and like all of this stuff is having to work together over time through time to it's like architecture i look at architecture as a product of the consciousness not just the material resources or the economy but the consciousness of an age so if, the, if i see a, a like the iowa state house it's got five domes five gold domes on the iowa state house it's a it's mind-bending that building I look at that, I'm like, well, that's a golden age building. Like it had to have come out of an age whose consciousness would be able to produce that, not just like knocked out on a few short years as a style. And here's another one. Look up. Can the audience see the buildings that you're pulling up? The ones that you just mentioned? No, I'm... Right. But when you pull, can you pull up the New York State Capitol building? Okay. Just for another example of a Richardson building attributed to HH. Yeah, that's the one in Albany. Okay. Yeah, yes. I have it down here. Hold on. Albany City Hall? Be the State House. Oh, okay. I believe the Capitol building. Yeah, because that's where the governor resides. Let's see. All right. I got it now. Wow. Yeah, this is, uh, this is quite a building here. All right. The audience should be able to see it. 
now. Yep. You're looking at the exterior? Yep. Yeah, check out the interiors. Oh. It's it's labyrinthian in its ornateness. Okay, yeah. This is a stairway here that he designed, Hobson. Yeah. Interesting. Again, it's if that building were in in Paris or Prague, we would accept that it was part of a product of generations and centuries of cultural development. But here, yeah, it's just one of, I think, 80 buildings. I think Richardson has 80 buildings that are attributed to him in 20 years. Wow. Yeah, the detail is incredible. Yeah. Why did I get into Richardson? One, because I had to look at his legacy. He's, again, one of three pillars of American architecture alongside Louis Sullivan, who came next, and then Frank Lloyd Wright, who initially worked for Sullivan and then went off on his own. Sullivan is credited with like the Prairie School architecture, Chicago architecture. I'm going to be looking into him more next, but I was led to investigate Richardson because actually through my research into Seattle, there's an architecture professor at University of Washington Architecture School, Jeffrey Oxner, who created a book called Distant Corners some years, or Distant Corner being the Northwest, some years ago. And he looks at the legacy of Seattle architecture, old Seattle architecture through the lens of this Richardsonian style. Because, and this is where the rubber really started to hit the road for me in terms of questioning what, what just what's going on here. Because C- Seattle, it's, I grew up around outside of Newark. I lived in Newark for some, some years. And it's, it, for me, it would be really hard to start doing this kind of research in Newark because was 350, 400 years old, and there's just been waves of immigration. It's like, how do you even begin to pull it apart and figure out if there's anomalies, like what came what before what and when and so forth. But Seattle is like all of 150 years of written history in terms of development of Seattle. And that's within the advent of modern photography as we know it, right? So we have a record of Seattle's development that we can really look into, scrutinize, analyze, and so forth. And so what's so curious about Seattle, in addition to it has this underground, which just to fast forward a little bit, is a result of this regrading project that went on for, I think, like 30 years, starting in the end of the 1800s, going into like the 1920s or so of, and by regrading, I mean millions and millions of cubic yards of material just washed away with water cannons and ocean water being siphoned from the Puget Sound and blasting away at these mount hills that are a hundred feet tall. Great. And then using to fill in the Duwamish River, which became an industrial zone. The Duwamish River is an ancient watershed, right? With like 10,000 years of Native American history alongside of and culture and everything. And then they just cut one part of the city 
and filled another part of the city and turned the Duwamish into a shipping canal and just obliterated basically everything. So when you go downtown Seattle, what you're looking at is like a new, is a terraformed landscape whose natural and human history has just been completely wiped away. It's either been cut or it's been filled. And so when they did the filling portion, some of it, some of it in order to get a completely level, because this is, you can see like, this is the objective is to get a completely level area and you can start popping up skyscrapers and having this modern machine of a city built upon, they wanted to just level it. And again, like I, I look at Seattle as a machine, basically some of it, they was below grade. So they had to raise those portions up and they did that by building embankments. And I show this in that video on Underground Seattle, they built these embankments that alongside of buildings that were there and they and, and buttressed walls along streets, and then it just filled it in. And then they just raised the level of the sidewalk to connect to the second floor of buildings that were pre-existing. And so you had a raised street, a raised ground floor over here. And then there was this big squabble between the city managers and the private building owners, the companies basically that own these buildings, the landlords, who's going to pay for the sidewalk? So for years, there was no sidewalk. So it was just, <laughs> if you do the underground tour, they have a lot of funny stories about drunken marauders falling into the pits between the new roads and the buildings. But I digress. The portions of Seattle that were regraded, and again, 100 foot, however tall mountains of of earth that were blasted away by cannon on top of that on top seattle think of seattle early seattle as a hilly city just like san francisco there was already a city there was already old world buildings beautiful stunning ornate high level architecture with by the way really cool infrastructure like street cars running everywhere, electric street trolleys. There was already a city on top before they tore it down and regraded it. In in, in that that early iteration of Seattle, it, the time frame for having built all of that was only between, let's say, 1870s, late 1870s and into... 1889. And 1889 is a pivotal year for all of this research. I feel that's when Seattle had its great fire that just wiped out downtown. The old, what they said was just wood buildings, tinderbox, just like Chicago, ready to go up in flames as soon as like a spark flew. And there's always a silly story about how that spark flew. And Seattle was a glue pot tipped over in a carpenter's shop, caught fire and the whole city burned, no, the whole downtown burned down. And that downtown burning down, specifically the downtown, is key information because you see that repeat over and over again in these very strange city fires. You could just list almost every city, almost every major city in America burned down at around this time. And almost always it's the downtown business district. And so Seattle was this, 1889. Before that, as mentioned, the city on the hill that was there before they it's so there's multiple things happening there there's an early iteration of a city on a hill with streetcars and ornate buildings and everything made out of by the way made out of brick and stone 
and granite and beautiful columns, beautiful arches. I've shown these videos, picked photos of the rubble, and it looks again like Chicago after the fire or say Hiroshima or something. Buildings that were feet thick of masonry that just looked like they were blasted away. And so what happened to the story of the wood, clapboard, tinderbox, settler city that was just ready to go up with the match? Because what I look at when I see these photos of Seattle fire, what I see is ruins of rubble and of brick and stone. And that, so you get the story where that was, that early iteration of the city was only given like 15 years in, in the narrative to even have been built out of, not to say of nothing, but out of a wilderness, right? Out of, and we're talking street grids, infrastructure, trolleys, the port, like factories. It's on and on with what does it take to build a city out of a wilderness? In addition to all the stuff you see above ground with the ornate brick and stone buildings themselves. And at that time, we're talking about, I think in like 1880, there was 3,000 people in Seattle. So how do, you know, where's the workforce? Where's the army of workers, of skilled craftsmen coming from Italy or Spain or where have you and showing up here and making all this stuff happen? So you have this story of like this earlier iteration of the city that gets, the downtown gets burned down in 1889. Then there's this very strange follow-up story where I talk about phantom architects a lot in my podcast where this where these architects show up, like this guy, Fisher, F-I-S-H-E-R, Fisher. It, he's credited with hundreds of buildings. And supposedly in the 18 months after the Seattle fire, there was some like 3,500 or almost 4,000 new buildings produced within 18 months immediately after the fire. But basically, the downtown just got rebuilt all over again. And then you have the regrade projects where they, there's still a city on a hill. There's still this stuff up here that wasn't downtown that didn't get burned down. And if people are interested, go look at my videos because these buildings are awesome. They're huge. They're massive. They're ornate. They're made of brick and stone in old world styles. And they're up on these hills. Well, they just not, they just, they're in the way, knock them down, blast them, get them out of there, and then blast the hills with water cannons. It's called hydraulic, I guess, hydraulic mining, what have you, which I kind of find that part curious, Mark. And there's questions. It's like, quite, like again, back to the thread, pulling on a thread and just start to go mad a little bit because I'm I just that part of it alone that they use hydraulic mining to reduce these massive hills to flatten them out and basically wash the earth away, wash it into the Duwamish River, wash it into other places that they wanted to fill. And you could see the pictures online or just look like they're very surreal. How did they know, just a question, how did they know that they could blast this away with water cannons? Because I built a house in Seattle when I moved out here 20 years ago. And when I was digging for the foundation, it was in North Seattle in a community called Lake City. I was digging for the foundation. I got down two or three feet and I hit hard pan. Hard pan is hard as a rock. It's like itself like concrete. And I couldn't, like I'm using a pretty big excavator and I couldn't 
break through it. It's really hard material. So how did they know that these hills would have just been, you start a project like that, you better be able to finish it, right? How did, it's just a question, like how did they know that they could use those techniques to remove that material at such a scale? I find that to be curious as well. And so then I look at this questions of mud flood and it's like, it's just curious. And if there was such an event that washed silt-like material over a huge area at some time in a relatively recent past, it would have had to have been, and if that's what that material is so there's some knowledge that they could have removed it with water cannons because they wouldn't have hit hard pan or just bedrock they would have just kept washing away silt one it implies like some kind of knowledge that's what that material was at depth we're talking about at depth dozens and dozens of feet and also it implies it kind of starts to give a time frame for when that might have occurred that if there was some kind of catastrophic event, because as I mentioned, there was a city on that hill. There were old buildings on those foothills, not mountains, but foothills that they removed in the early decades of the 19th or the 20th century. Is this making sense, Mark? Yeah, no, it's making a ton of sense. Now, Given I'd never been to Seattle, it's hard for me to really like visualize some of what you're saying. But now that I'm looking online, I'm seeing some images, I'm finding some brick buildings. Do you have any examples? I mean, there's the whole underground element of Pioneer Square where people can go down and see the original street level, right? And even this sinking ship garage kind of implies that. There was something here before that has sunk into the ground. I mean, the sinking ship garage is just a a shitty parking garage that they put in place of a beautiful, ornate old world building that was once there. Yeah. Well, we're down in Pioneer Square. Well, it seems like sort of ironic, maybe tongue in cheek or two on the nose, but like, hey, we just sunk your old world history, so to speak. Like, here it is a sinking ship. disgusting brutalist capitalism garage there there's a lot of that in seattle and it's uh, yeah it's hard it's hard not to get cynical living here man i'm not long for the city it's just because there's so much of that and it's like i when i first moved to seattle sorry i don't want to get too sidetracked on this but i just had a feeling like i was arriving at a place where the party had kind of just ended there was a lot, of, it seemed to me like there was a lot of cool things that were going on in Seattle. It's just not, I don't know. It's that kind of thing where like you had a beautiful building, you tore it down, you put up a sinking ship parking garage. It's this, I feel like it's a city that's going to, it's run by bureaucrats and technocrats. And again, back to the idea of the architecture reflects the consciousness of the age. Well, if you go around downtown Seattle right now and you just, I mean, it's this really sad story, what's going on in downtown Seattle right now. Like, it's really tragic, just the human crisis. And just in the last three years, especially, it's gotten really bad. Fentanyl junkies and the tents and Keaton Campments and everything that goes along with that. It's, it's kind of, it's, yeah, it's just become untenable. But I feel like it's, I feel like that is the result of 
this just technocratic mindset. It's just like, screw the humanity. We're doing this. We're going to proceed progress. We're going to like roll out our technocratic city. And thank God Seattle is surrounded by beautiful, powerful nature. We've got Mount Rainier to the south, got the Cascades to the east, the Olympics to the west. And it's just in British Columbia's just in the north of us, and we've got the Puget Sound. So that tempers a lot of this really overwhelming ugliness. Yeah, it is. And it's like a spiritual thing. Mm-hmm. I really feel like this stuff is, it's visceral, it's spiritual. Yeah. So like I could do a screen share and put some, Please put do. some pictures to this. Yeah. Cause I'm seeing a lot of what look like modern skyscrapers when I type in like, Hey, what are some of the best architecture examples? There are a few buildings that have this Richardsonian Romanesque look, but they're all post 1900s. I wonder if those don't count as old world or if there are a few maybe extant buildings from that time. I mean, are there any buildings from this, these pre disaster times? There are. Yeah, there, there are. And don't let me wrap this up without, kind of tying the bow around this Richardsonian okay. question. And just what you just asked there, I want to circle back around to that. So this is in, in, I'll try to kind of breeze through this. This is what we're given as like the old pioneer town. Can you see this? Yeah. Okay. So this is 1870 and this is what we're shown as going on in 1870. 1880, 1882, you get the Yesler building. I don't know. I look at this and I'm just, I'm baffled. 1882. And across Ketty Corner to this building, this is the Yesler building, a Yesler Leary building. And Yesler is Henry Yesler, he said to have brought the first sawmill to Seattle, which they started cutting down the ancient old growth trees and building the city. Okay, yada. That which burned down in the Great Fire. Well, I'm looking at this building, or this is the Occidental building. And the level of exquisite detail on this is just, it's, I don't get it. I don't understand. Right. And when I say, what I mean by that is this is complex, right? This is a really complex piece of architecture. And by the way, in engineering. And I find it curious, look at the scale of it, Mark. Can you see these dudes down here hanging out against the railing? Yeah, now that you point them out, yeah. Yeah, look at the size. This is floor to floor. This has got to be 15 feet, right? And every floor repeats the scale of this is just monumental. So if you're just kind of pulling a city out of the wilderness with just in 1882, there might have been 5,000 people, right? And And people are eking out a living, let's say. They're building you know, their own homes, maybe they're laying down farms, they're fishing, they're doing whatever you need to do to survive in a city that you're just building, just propagating. And you take the time to start building buildings that are like this, that how do you even heat this thing? Like if you have 14 or 12 foot ceilings, what have you, these windows themselves look like they're 12 feet tall. Where are you getting all that glass from? Why? How do you, are there fireplaces in every one of these rooms to keep it warm? Like Seattle gets cold. 
it's not like Missouri cold or New Connecticut cold, like those kind of winters, but it's like, it gets into your skin wet cold for six months. Right. And so any masonry building would also be cold unless you could keep that masonry warm. Right. And so how are you doing that? And why waste the resources on such a thing? And then you get buildings like this, Fry's Opera House. So here's two different iterations, art, artist renderings. This is also a very ornate, ornate old brick and stone building. And the reason I know that is because one of the fire photos that I have from the Chicago fire show the ruins of this. So it's a ruin of brick and stone. So this burned down in the great fire. You have buildings like, let me show you a photograph of this central high school. Let's see. Do you see this? This is supposed to be a high school. This was supposed to be a high school. Wow. Seattle central high school. This, I was actually in Prague a few months ago. This looks like a building that was out of Prague. It's got this, like, what we affectionately refer to as antiquitac with these antennas yeah. that they say are flagpoles coming up. And so I'm looking at it again through the lens of, I, I ascribe to electric universe theory. I believe that everything is essentially electrical or electromagnetic. And so I think in order to understand buildings that were I think in order to understand Antiquitech, let's say, we have to begin to look at this electric universe theory and also take on board that whoever produced buildings that were employing Antiquitech type architecture understood that the universe is electromagnetic, that reality itself is electromagnetic, that when we talk about electrical architecture, or I like the term electrical architecture, I'm not talking about a building that collects energy and then you can plug your cell phone to charge into the wall socket in the stone is that there's something happening electromagnetically that a can uplift your mind body and spirit and also b over here do something somehow to produce a physical a physical outcome a physical effect be it can the building warm itself We've looked at these radiant fireplaces, for instance. Can the alchemy of these materials coming together in such a way actually produce a warming effect to where you don't need wood-burning fireplaces well, and in that's, structures like that's this? That's kind of where I thought you were going with it as soon as you sort of insinuated that earlier. And it prompted me to look up or ask the question to my search engine here, how how is the electrical grid or what's the history of the electrical grid? I found an article called how has the electrical grid changed? And it says that in 1882, the United States created its first electrical grid. And after the great depression, the electrical or the electricity industry transformed from competitive and unregulated to regulated and monopolized by zones before and after both sounds corrupt and fishy and it also mm -hmm. sounds like the type of atmosphere where these very wealthy types would say, hey, let's delete all this old world architecture because we're not going to be able to charge people money to live in their houses if they use this old world technology. We need to give them basically houses that are cold without our help so that we can charge them to live. Correct. Now, wow. One thing that I have noticed over and over again, Mark, is that 
Can you see my mouse? Yes. These towers on these old buildings, nine times out of 10, when these buildings survive, the towers are gone. Huh. Somebody doesn't like these towers or whatever is going on up in here with all this antiquitech. Right. And all the maybe bell towers, maybe clock towers. I mean, these look, this is so curious. Like what are, what sort of device are we looking at? Yeah, that doesn't even I, look like a clock face there. I mean, it could be, but I won't understand where the hands of the clock are. And if this building is so high, how would someone be able to read the clock if the hands weren't pretty obviously there? I mean, yeah. maybe it's just the quality of the photo, but the finials and I don't know what the weather vanes maybe on top of these points on the roof here. Some of them yeah. kind of look like the Fur de Lance. Fur de Lee. Yeah, yeah. And, then, and then others are just straight poles. It's interesting. Yeah. I forget what exactly I was reading the other day, but there was something about weather vanes and roosters and how roosters are connected somehow to electricity, and that's why they put roosters on top of on top well, they of wake up with the weather the sun, vane. Which is interesting. In right. L, L, electricity is... Hell is God and all that stuff. I don't know. That's interesting. I think it was this guy, Paul Stobbs, who does research into the Nephilim. He was talking about this and how the rooster symbolizes Hmm. some sort of ancient being Hmm. that had something to do with power and electricity. So, yeah. So there's clues hidden in plain sight all over. And I, again, it's like we talked about, we started out earlier talking about obelisks having some kind of a resonant resonance quality to them. So when I see these kind of spires and spires and spires and towers coming out of towers, it's like I I look at this as a resonant structure, picking up frequencies. Right. What is it doing with it? I don't know. I don't know. Like, but I know that they keep knocking the tops off these buildings when they allowed them to stick around. Here's another example. This is the Pioneer Building, which is said to be... This is said to be Henry Yesler's last building that he sponsored as, again, founding father of Seattle. You can visit Pioneer, the Pioneer Building today, and which is great that it's still here, but the tower is missing. So they took the tower down. Wait, now when you say they took the tower down, are you talking just about this triangular? Yep. Right there. Okay. So this where your mouse cuts has off. this antenna. Yeah. Now, see, what I saw, when I saw this for the first time, I immediately thought those rocks stacked above that entrance arc in the center, they seem to be stacked on top of each other. I mean, I don't know if they're rocks, but they look like each one of those is a solid one-piece rock or a piece of cement that's meant to look like one solid piece. I wonder... And you see this a lot with these types of buildings. I wonder if these like protruding vertical lines on the sides of these buildings are meant to channel the energy down straight to the ground, giving it like a direct line, direct current, right? Because you see all those rocks stacked on top. Yeah, see, I mean, it looks like those were rocks just pulled out of the river and then just stacked on top of each other and adhesed together. It's a very curious, stylistically, yeah, it's a very curious application with this type of texture. One thing Um, that the architecture of Seattle Wikipedia page said, and I'll read it right now because it's kind of interesting the way they word it, but it says that 
Seattle, the largest city in the Pacific Northwest region of the U.S., features elements that predate the arrival of the area's first settlers of European ancestry. So I know they're they're sort of talking about the native influence architecture. That could be an example of that, where there's just sort of more rudimentary stone uncut. It does feel vague the way they put that as the first sentence. Like when I first read that, I was like, whoa. Then I go further and they kind of describe how there's like longhouse style buildings that have been created to commemorate the original inhabitants. But maybe there's more. I mean, there are legends of the Cherokee having sort of palatial estates and brick buildings. Is it possible that the people who are the Duwamish tribe and maybe their neighbors had more advanced architecture skills than we're told? Because there's some descriptions of longhouses out on the East Coast that are very elaborate and ornately designed. I mean, now we're told longhouses were just sort of wooden reed constructions, but is it possible that they had stone and other elements involved? I mean, I mean, again, it's like, look, what are, what does our lying eyes tell us? Like, look at this photograph. And the question of what did the Indians know or how come they... I find that to be a compelling question, but at the same time, it's like, well, tragically, horrifically, the Native American population, the population we attribute, we credit with being native to Turtle Island, went through generations of genocide. Yeah, culture wash and brain, like, talk about reset and re-education camp and the whole thing. like Atrocities, basically. Yeah, but it's like a mind wipe, right? right? So it's like, what did they know? I don't know. Do they know? And it's not, that's not no disrespect to anybody. Far from it. Like I look at a, a photograph like this to me is damning because this, this is front street before the great fire. This is not wood and brick building. I mean, I'm sorry. This is not wood clapboard tinderbox type construction from Henry Yesler's sawmill and old growth trees that were just waiting for somebody, for some spark, for old Miss O'Leary's cow to kick over a lantern or for some glue pot to tip over. And every city, like I said, New York City is hilarious. New York City, it's a ball of yarn caught on fire and a kid threw out a window and burned down New York City. Like there's these really cartoonish, like children's story backstories to all these urban fires, not to digress, but did the early inhabitants of Seattle, indigenous people, participate in high level? And I'm saying this is high level construction, architecture, and engineering, urban development. It's it's a fascinating question. Were they given a different? Were they given another story right. that they're nomadic, sim- simple, more of a simple type pe- folks? Yeah, I don't know how much evidence there is for that Cherokee brick building stuff. That, as far as I've heard, was centered around St. Louis, which has its own amazing architecture to talk about, I'm sure. But yeah, I don't think we give the Native Americans enough credit for even the stuff that we've recognized them building uh, like the mounds and maybe even some Mm -hmm. of these stone structures that are all nestled up here where I live, you must have seen them when you spent time in New Jersey, the stone walls and things like that. But yeah, it definitely seems like all these other places, Florida is another great example. 
where you have multiple different cultures before the European settlers interacting with one another, building things, and then mm-hmm. this homogenization takes place where the new settlers have to essentially recreate an explanation for what was there first, right? I mean... Yeah. I don't see there's any other way to look at this. Yeah. And again, it's like, I don't, I don't care what we call it. <laughs> call it Tartaria, fine. I really don't care. I just don't want to get distracted by that. I want to be able to look at a photograph like this, know that this was before 1898, know that the population and all this stuff we talked about, the infrastructure development, the material resource, the railroad wasn't even here. They didn't even have the transcontinental railroad completed by the, it, by the time these buildings were being built, okay, so then they had to bring all those materials by ship and so forth, and maybe bricks were being made. And San Francisco is another one. Like we could look at that yeah. build, uh, that panorama of San Francisco, and it's like twenty years. You've got dozens of cathedrals going on by the eighteen sixties, eighteen seventies. So anyway, I see a building like this, and this is so advanced. The architecture, like we're looking at all this antiquitech. This is that down at the corner here. This is that Yesler building we were looking at, but it was a whole, it wasn't just standalone buildings. It was a whole street built out. And look at the level of sophisticated detail that went into this, Mark. Okay. 1889, right? 1889, the fire happens, the great fire, because for whatever reason they tell us. And I mentioned to you before, like, that these, the masonry is feet thick. I mean, I'm looking at like two, three feet thick of brick and brick, like how, and this, these were the, this was the one we looked at the building where it's 15 foot floor to floor. This was a massive masonry structure and they're just obliterated. And in 1889, here's, remember I told you the Fry's Opera House, I showed you that artist rendering of, this is it. This is that building. Wow. Yeah. And so in this is in the summer of 1889, Mark. Okay. Washington's not yet a state. This is where my research started to get really interesting. Do you know what else happened in the summer of 1889? Ellensburg burned down. And that's, this is Ellensburg. And, I, and Spokane burned down. Okay. I'm sorry. This is Seattle, but Spokane burned down. Now, Seattle, Ellensburg, and Spokane, downtown business districts, all burned down within two, like, I think two months of each other in the summer of 1889. Do you know what else was going on at that time? Is there was a statehood convention to bring Washington territory into the Union going on this summer. It started in May. Washington didn't want to enter the Union. There was Washington was a holdout territory. They're like, thanks, no thanks. We like being a territory up here in the Northwest by ourselves or whatever. We got our own thing going on. Well, all of a sudden, three major cities all of which, each of which was vying on its own way, and there's all these competing forces to be the new capital, should Washington become a state, burned down, just the business districts, gone, obliterated. Within, by November, I think November 7th, so within three months later, Washington elects to become, I don't know what it was, the 
40, 42nd state or something like that. So to me, that begs a much bigger question in, in, in an area of research that gets very little coverage. I've, I haven't seen really much on this at all anywhere, which was what this whole statehood project or this whole, I'm sorry, federal project of bringing territories in to become, to join the union, to be states, I don't think was so warm and fuzzy, man. (laughs) I think it was all out war going on. And to me, I look at this and I'll just tell you my feeling is I look at this as a shock and awe campaign. Like you don't want to, Join the union? Well, guess what? We got bigger guns than you. We're going to blow up your old world downtown districts and drag you in. And now you're part of the United States. Well, and and I imagine it was pretty simple to cause this destruction and then say, hey, we're the federal government. Let's give you a loan to rebuild and do it our way, the way we describe so our companies can get in and build these electrical grids. They've already, I mean, yeah, Mark, it's the same story over and over. It's rinse and repeat. Wow. It's going on in Ukraine right now. Like they've already said, it's going to be the new shiny modern utopia once all the the shouting stops. Right. And so this is what they do. It's terrifying, but I really think it take, it re, this requires like a hard look. And also because on the lighter side of things, we had beauty. We had, th- this is Ellensburg. This is downtown Ellensburg. Like this, there's a lot of, it's easy to be cynical about the country that we live in because of the madness and the ignorance and the backwardness that plays out. But this is what we had. This is what our cities looked like. This is what Ellensburg, which is in central Washington, lost when a cow kicked over land. Actually in Ellensburg, it's said to be arson, but it's also said that it's unknown what was the cause of the fire. So there were some newspaper reports at the time that uh, suggested arson or what have you. Wow. Yeah, that's pretty amazing stuff. I reminds me of some of the stuff that is here in New England. I don't know that there was much of a need to convince any of the 13 colonies to stay in the Union. They were all pretty much owned by the time that Seattle and all these cities were being founded out West, they were all pretty much thoroughly controlled. So maybe that explains why in the same time period, we don't have the same kind of massive city fires in places like Boston or Hartford or New Haven. I mean, there's very few examples of that. I'm pretty sure Boston had a conflagration, Mark. Yeah, you know what? As I said that, and as you said that, I'm kind of reminded of that. Yeah, so maybe that's the case. Maybe Boston had the same sort of threat where they were made to... Maybe it wasn't even political in that side. Maybe it was that industrial side of things where they were resetting the way the country functioned, where you got to get rid of these old insulated stone buildings so that we can charge people for energy. Heat. Yeah, maybe they just look at it as business. It's just business. So it's just a practical question for them. They're like, well, how do we shoehorn this new electrical and plumbing and whatever infrastructure right. into these old cities? What a pain. Let's just knock them down. Right. That's and I think that's really what I'm trying to say is that there's there was a infrastructure sort of reset going on and a mm-hmm. lot of this old world architecture fell victim to that. And maybe there was a political agenda coached alongside of that as well now here's yeah here's again old 
This is the Denny Hotel up here on the left. This says this photo is from 1907. This area was regraded and then it was turned into this. And it's, I mean, I have a hard time believing all this happened in two years, but that's what this photo says. So here's your new, your new metropolis and your new machine type city. And here's another example. It's this up in the left, upper left corner is the King County, the original King County courthouse. Mm. And again, old world building, if I've ever seen one. And, and so here is this overlay, like this area, this hill up here would have been washed down. But in the meantime, they're bringing in, and you, I love this picture because you can see how the new grid is just like oozing over the landscape, right? And so you can see how like the, some of these buildings would have already been here and they just do this raised sort of viaduct type of highway thing. And you can see how under these sidewalks, you'd have this underground zone that today you can still go and visit the Seattle underground with all its weirdness. And then you get these, what in from one angle, oh, it's mud flooded and this and that, we see these basement windows going down below grade. But then if you roll back how it actually unfolded over time, you can see that well, the building was there. Then they raised this hit the grade of the city and, and then some of those windows just receded under the sidewalk line. And I'm not saying that's the case with all below grade windows, because again, I guess like, I think there's a strong case to make that there was some type of conflagration Mm. in the recent past, relatively recent past that was left these like huge silt mounds, silt foothills that were then built upon at one time. And it's just progression just unfolds and unfolds over time and has all of these different iterations. Right. Just because we're talking about the regrade, we'll look at this. This is what they were doing, washing away all of this stuff with water cannons. And grade might not be a familiar term for everybody. So, I mean, think mm-hmm. roads when you're going down a steep road yeah. and it's uh, you have that sign on the side of the road that says grade 9% or whatever. This is what he's saying. I mean, it's a little late for this. I'm sure people have caught on with the context. But, yeah, I just grade yeah. might not be a readily available term for everybody. Yeah, thank you for that, Mark. Sometimes I forget. That's all right. Here, again, check it out. Check this out. If people at home or what have you, the audience is listening to this, if you get a chance to watch it as well, you'll get a much richer sort of picture. And because here we're showing earthen, a very odd, Mark, isn't this very strange? Like these hills are just kind of knobs and they go up and they go down and there's houses built in within and around all these old buildings are just kind of like following the landscape of this earlier iteration of development that happened who knows when don't but then they knocked all this up here they knocked it down washed away all of these mounds and that are 80 100 feet tall and then just so you look at the photo from below this is specifically this is the Denny Hill regrade there was many Denny Hill is the one that gets a lot of the fame and whatnot or notoriety. But then it turns into like what looks just like it looks like a massive parking lot, but it's really just a new grade, a new level. They just leveled it all. So now we're going to start over with a new street grid, sell the real estate to the highest bidder kind of a thing. And then modern office buildings are going to start popping up as we see today, like so many mushrooms. One more of this idea 
This is I-5 blasting through downtown, which would, once would have been hills. And then I see a building like this, and this is some Presbyterian church. And I look at that, and I scratch my head. and like, when was that from, really? Right. Because all this stuff just happened around it. Yeah. Wow. Huh. And again, with the stones that seem like found stones, loose stones that probably would have been part of the environment used to create these very large scale projects. Very, I mean, what is that? Three stories? The this building here? Yeah. Oh gosh. I mean, you have one story, two stories. There's very odd stair that looks like it's coming up to a second story here because it's on a little bit of a slope. So right. four know, stories. Three almost. into this attic, four, five. I mean, it's really seven. Wow. I mean, this pro the top of this is probably at least a hundred feet tall, if not more. Wow. 120 feet. It's, yeah, these are formidable edifices. Right. Now, Mark, I don't know how long you want to go with this because I, I wanted to circle back around to your question about are there buildings that are still intact? And yeah. I just want to give mention to that. I did the I did a whole deep dive history into Port Townsend, which is just across Puget Sound from Seattle. It's on the it's on the tip of the Olympic Peninsula. And Port Townsend is absolutely fascinating because it's preserved. It, they went through great pains to preserve their old building stock. And so here we have, remember I mentioned Fisher, that architect, the architect, the phantom architect that shows up and then just as quickly disappears in a narrative. And it's always like self-trained architect from Ohio, blah, blah, blah. Well, this is said to be a Richardsonian building built in the style of H.H. H. Richardson. It's the Jefferson County Court, Jefferson County building, Jefferson County Courthouse. Yes. And the again, it's like the level of detail on this. It just boggles my mind anyway. And th so this is going on at the same time. These buildings are showing up in Seattle in this impossible timeline with insufficient population levels, to say the least. And the same thing is happening across the water in an even more remote location in Port Townsend. Now, I marvel at the fact that this building still exists, that the tower still exists. This is the type of thing that would be disappeared if they were to keep this building at all. And there are examples of that all over Port Townsend, where, so for instance, you have this building, which is the city hall said to have been built in 1890. And check this out, Mark, you'll appreciate this very much. So this is the old city hall, ye olden city hall, right? 1890. Well, 1860, it looked like this. They kept oh. the building and then they even went to the effort of remodeling this wreck of, it's just, it's, I mean, I see this it just makes me sad. And they remodeled it into a, a museum of art and history, which is wonderful and good on them. But this is what they started with. And there's always a story of like, oh, in 1940, there was an earthquake or there was a hurricane or there was something that rattled the roof and knocked. They had to take the tower down. But that story, that story just kind of comes up like, like old Mrs. O'Leary's cow kicking over the land. It's just like there's these, it's like these formulaic storylines that are just, you start to see them enough and you start to, you could just kind of guess them. And Port Townsend, interestingly, has its own underground. Hmm. And like, I'm like, how did Port Townsend 
get its own underground where you can go down and there's a street level down below and there's storefronts below the street grade. And I looked and I couldn't figure out how until I show it in here. I'll show you this just to paint the picture or here. Again, brick buildings, 1890. And this whole area of downtown was filled in. According to a geologist that I found, a local geologist, trained professional geologist, did a, a YouTube video, which I came upon in doing this research. And he did an analysis of, of the various layers of earth and stone in this portion of downtown Port Townsend, because this abuts, it's a waterfront, it's a waterfront community. You can see here, right? There's, you're right up on, you're right up on the Puget Sound. And so what he said is that this whole area of downtown was filled. So at one time to basic, like Battery Park City, New York. So like they just filled it in to extend the real estate out into the water so they could build more buildings. So that answers the question of how does it have an underground, but it doesn't answer the question of, to me, of like, it makes it even more impossible to understand. Like, so not only did they build all these buildings in record time with so few people and resources, but they also had to actually fill in the downtown first. They actually had to fill in the land itself in order to build upon. I'm like, who is doing this? Who's, who, where is all of this energy and labor and Where's it coming from? And so it's full circle, I guess, Mark. It's to this question of who built what and when and how. And I don't think any of us have any real good answers at this time for this. But I think the questions, like arriving at the right questions, is a really good way to approach this whole research. Because yeah. it's the implications are just, the implications are that our whole story that we have about who we are and where we are is off by a lot. Right. And we have to do some serious regrouping and rethinking who are we and where are we is not for the faint of heart. Yeah, no, it's a big area of mystery. What exactly went down before the United States became the 50 United States and yeah, you've raised a lot of questions here that I don't think we could find the answers to. I wonder, Wilhelm Reich was around back then. Maybe they used some sort of weather machine to cause the mud floods that people talk so much about. I mean, it's already a place that gets record precipitation every year. You said it's, it would be a tremendous feat to fill all that in. Maybe they used some sort of weather manipulation to provoke the effect they desired and disaster capitalism. They put the federal money insurance in place to, I guess, recoup their losses. But yeah, wow. So people can expect to find more of this at Marvelous Old World, your channel, which I will link in the description so people can go and check that out on YouTube. I'm going to put this video on YouTube as well. So people just go right over and subscribe. Make sure you subscribe to this channel as well. Give it a like, comment, tell us how much you loved Matt here being on the show. Matt, any final thoughts, anything you want to plug? Obviously you have a business designing things for people. So if there's anyone in the audience that wants a guy like Matt to 
work with them on their project. I mean, if you're watching a video like this, maybe Matt can use some piezoelectric materials. I mean, what I'm sure you're thinking of that kind of stuff in your downtime, right? Well, I mean, I, yeah, I go to sleep thinking about this stuff, wake up thinking about it. It's my passion. And it's looking at this history, like where we were kind of touching upon, it can get a little bit dark. And it's that professor I mentioned in the beginning, Jack Labdeska, he used to say that our young people get involved in architects because they're optimists. I, it's a passion. It really is. Like, and when I look at what we lost, it's only because like I mourn it and I would like to learn from it so that we, and we can apply what we can apply what we learn from to building a new and better world and to me that's really what it comes down to and professionally yeah i like i try to apply these practices like i build to the extent that i can with the opportunities that i have i specialize in building roundhouses wooden yurts and they're beautiful structures it's its own niche market which is great because i don't i'm not kind of out there in the mixing with other architects much, which I like because I don't really like where the profession is right now. And just one look at the type of condo development that's going on all over around me here in office buildings. And again, it's that technocratic, bureaucratic mindset that I think has really infected the profession itself. So I get to design really cool houses for people that are round for the most part. Round buildings are exquisite by their nature because it's like this pure geometry you have pure tension at the bottom of a roof a conical roof and you have this pure compression element of this compression ring at the top and it creates like this drum effect and it's like you can stand in the middle of one of these buildings and before all the walls and everything goes up on the inside and hum and just it sounds like the voice is coming from inside of you so to me that it's just that experience that visceral experience it's very uplifting People walk into these houses and they just light up, they smile, they don't even know why, they just feel something differently. And so, yeah, if anybody wants a roundhouse design, look me up. Or if you're just curious, yeah, dreamdesignbuild.org. It's a lot of fun. Yeah. And Mark, this has been fantastic. Thank you yeah. for the opportunity to put these ideas out there. Yeah, thank you for joining me again. Like I said, folks, follow Marvelous Old World on YouTube and dive in. I mean, right now you've covered some areas in Seattle, and I'm sure you're only just beginning. So I'm excited to follow up with your channel and have you back on. Maybe we could talk more about Seattle or San Francisco, whichever city you set your sights on next. But until next time, folks, stay posted. Look around you. Maybe the old world is still right in front of you. All right, ladies and gentlemen, that was our episode with Matthew Smith. Go and follow him over at Marvelous Old World on YouTube. I got to give a big shout out to all of our supporters who helped us come close, but not close enough to our goal that we set this week. So if you'd like to see us continue to do three episodes a week, please just go and support us on Patreon, Rockfin, or Substack. You can send a one-time donation to me via PayPal, Venmo, or Cash App. Uh, the links are all in the description. Cash App is my full name, Mark Steves Jr., at Cash App, that's the cash sign you got to use, and Mystic Mark on Venmo and PayPal. So 
please go and do that so I can continue to put out great shows. Uh, we've got some new patrons that I want to give a shout out to. And of course, some new bonus episodes on the Patreon for patrons only. So be sure to sign up if you're not already a part of it so you can access all the content and make sure that we continue to put out two to three episodes a week. I'm going to commit to three until uh, summer ends. But hey, you know what? If it goes good, we'll just keep it flowing. I'm also considering changing up some things with the bonus content. So be on the lookout for that. Uh, quick shout out to Damien, Trevor, uh, Vincent Trewell, who's going to be on the show soon. Uh, Joshua, thank you so much for signing up on the Patreon the past month. Uh, Substack and Rockfin as well are pumping and driving and driving and driving and driving. I don't know what else to say. I recorded a great outro already, and then I mixed the music way too loud, so I had to start over and record a new one. So here we are, take two. Got to give a big shout-out to our friend Austin over there at Olympic Seeds, the number one way to grow. Just pick up some Olympic Seeds. They've tested all the best strains, and they've nurtured them in the best environment possible to grow cannabis. So you know that the crop you'll be buying, that you'll be growing, is top quality. Trust me, Olympic Seeds is the way to go. Hit up Austin on Instagram at 1950sduckweb or austin at olympicseeds.com. And of course, if you're smoking, if you're growing, you got to get a hit kit to keep whatever you're smoking on safe and sound right there next to your lighter. Pick up a hit kit. Go to hitkit.us or the hit kit on Instagram and use that promo code crazy to save 15% off at checkout. So that's it for me, folks. Stay tuned. Very soon, I will have a bonus episode available for supporters only about Fort Jefferson because there are a couple of loose ends that we didn't get to cover in this episode, and I really want to spend some time tackling that topic, and maybe this will be the next iteration of Esoteric America for supporters only. So come on over to the Patreon, the Rockfin, or the Substack and uh, be a part of the family. I appreciate everyone who's already there and uh, everyone who sent a one-time donation in the past few days. Shout out to Kelly, who sent us a Venmo. Uh, thank you so much. And yeah, I hope to see all of you August 12th at Sam Tripoli Show here in Connecticut. Anybody who's local, come on down. I'll see you there. And uh, yeah, looking forward to it. Until next time, immerse yourself in the moment wherever you are in the now. MFTIC Broadcasting the moon matrix from the lunar surface They want you confused like you never knew your purpose Hopping through the portals, dismantling the machine My family thinks I'm crazy, I can't believe what I've seen Memories of a war, the Pleiadians and Anunnaki Stuck within the genes of a copy of a human body DNA fractal, the universe within me Epiphanies of science is hoarded by the Illuminati
puppet masters know the power of the mantra repeating mad lies till it has an effect on ya subliminal messages hijacking perception tricking the population with holographic projections we see through it the system is unraveling I'm astral traveling Through the library of the Vatican On a sacred journey I embark with the squad Forever spitting truth Like Mark on the pod Gotta know the facts Never hold back Cause I ain't getting caught up In the soul trap I dissect the fabric of reality Looking for the answers Searching through the galaxy You might be feeling stressed out Depression, anxiety is no measure of health to be well adjusted to a sick society You don't even know how powerful you are We the ones who gonna expose the whole facade I awoke in a deep underground military base Zero recollection of how I got to this place Alien corpses floating in glass cylinders Must have been extracted when they crashed into us Animal hybrids contained in the cages a lion with the eagle head, monkeys with reptilian faces Losing my mind and I'm feeling desperate I look around the room and I see no sign of an exit All of a sudden the wall flickers away Revealing a hangar full of spacecraft, my getaway I run to the nearest one See a guard knock him out, rob him for his plasma gun Hop in the ship, take the controls They highly intuitive, I figure it out easily Lift off, accelerate through a tunnel until I see the light Fly into the sky, get flanked by six F-35s Gotta know the facts, never hold back Cause I ain't getting caught up in the soul trap I dissect the fabric of reality Looking for the answers, searching through the galaxy You might be feeling stressed out Depression, anxiety, is no measure of health To be well adjusted to a sick society You don't even know how powerful you are We the ones who gonna expose the whole facade